You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group, www.americantheatre.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Off Script, American Theatre's podcast on all things theatrical, September 9th, 2022. I'm Rob Weiner Kent. My pronouns are he, him. I'm the editor in chief of American Theatre Magazine. I'm here with my colleague, Alexandra Pearson. I'm the associate editor here at American Theatre. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm zooming in from the land of the Lenape in Queens. As am I. My background is not the land of the Lenape. It is actually uh, the Mead Center from Arena, Arena Stage, as is my want. Uh, I put behind me the background of uh, matches our guest. Our guest today is going to be Molly Smith, the outgoing artistic director. Uh, arena stage. We're going to talk to her in a few minutes. First, we're going to talk a little bit about what we've been up to. Uh, I want to make a real quick pitch up front. Uh, if you're not a member of TCG, please join TCG. Uh, it helps support our work and the work of, uh, uh, of Theater Communications Group in supporting the field. Um, so go to our website, americantheater.org slash join and, uh, and support our work. Um, we have been busy, largely, I've been busy moving. That's on a personal note, uh, moving my family from one part of Queens to another and then back to the same place. It's a long story. You can talk about it. Yeah, I'll tell you about it sometime if you ever see me in person. Um, in any case, so we've been busy with that and also preparing for our first big season preview package. Uh, we did one last year when there was a something like a season happening, but now it looks like for better or worse, or whatever you think about it, theaters all over the country are sending in their listings and it looks like a real season is coming. Um, I know I know a lot of theaters actually have a calendar year or summer season, but the majority of the theaters who are members of our, our, our organization and around the country do a sort of school year season, fall to spring. And we're planning a big preview issue. Our next uh, podcast, I'm gonna just plug it right now. Our next off script, chat and podcast on September 23rd, Friday at 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. We are going to announce for the first time in three years, the top 10 most produced plays list in the coming season and the top 20 most produced playwrights list. I just crushed the numbers yesterday. Very excited to share this. I'm not gonna say a word about it until that next podcast and, and live chat. So you've got to tune in uh, two weeks from now and you'll find out uh, who who's going to get the most uh, shows produced and which shows will be showing up on the most stages. It's actually a really fascinating uh, list. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll have more about that soon. Um, let's see. I uh, restarted my column called The Agenda, where I just look at what, what stuff that's come across my desk in my inbox. My first one was all about different productions of Shakespeare. And this past week, I kind of smushed together some shows, very disparate uh, ambitions and um, uh, character. I, I think the only bar I had was they were interesting to me, and I, they were shows I would could would see if I could go if I could travel to. In the one case, Seattle to see Fifth Avenue Theater, see the Griswolds Family Vacation, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's the National Lampoon Vacation Family. Oh no, sorry, it's called Griswolds Broadway Vacation. I don't think I said that. So it's taking that family from the vacation movies, sending them to Broadway. Um, <clears throat> it's by uh, David Rossmer and uh, Steve Rosen, who did the other Josh Cohen. 
it sounds like a, a romp, something I could maybe take my kids to, and it's fun. The other one uh, in that category sort of was, it came from outer space, production that's now at Theater Squared in Arkansas that originated Chicago Shakespeare Theater, which is by the guys who did Murder for Two, uh, Kellen Blair and Joe Kanozian, a, you know, devilishly clever sort of uh, popular, populist piece of entertainment. It was like a murder mystery with two pianists. So murder mystery musical that was kind of a regional hit a couple of years ago. That's, this is by them. This is an adaptation of the Ray Bradbury uh, science fiction movie. I'm just interested in that kind of, you know, material. And it sounded like a fun show. The other two are, you know, not to put too harsh a contrast on them. The other two I've talked about were Ghosts, a revival of Ghosts at uh, the Odyssey Theater by one of my favorite directors, Bart DeLorenzo, uh, out there in L.A. He had a lot of interesting things to say about why do Ghosts. It's a particularly uh, hard to watch Ibsen play if you if you stay to the end. Um, and then the other one was uh, talked to David Strathairn, the amazing actor who actually happened to recently in a production of Ghosts, but it was a it's a play called Remember This which also played at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Um, and it's Lessons of Jan Karski, a Polish diplomat who during World War II witnessed the Warsaw Ghetto and actually apparently toured Auschwitz um, and tried to warn the Allies. Um, it's a fascinating piece. Um, it's, it's from uh, the, it's actually a project of the Georgetown Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics, uh, Derek Goldman's outfit, and he's one of the co-authors in this play. So, you know, this is a strange way to cover four different shows, but I think they're all worthy shows. That's the only one I will be able to see because it's going to play at Theater for New Audience uh, starting this weekend. Um, so I'll be able to see that while I'm here. And if the other ones tour or if magically they stream their, their material, I'll be able to see the other ones. So look for that. I'm working on another column like that. And then I'm going to sum up the top 10 in a couple of weeks. Allie, sorry, that was a long yeah, um, I just want to shout out this week, our writer Leo did a marvelous feature on veteran stage and screen, act, screen actor John Beasley, who is finally Broadway bound at age 79. He's playing the role of older Noah in The Notebook, which is currently running at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Uh, it's got songs by the wonderful Ingrid Michaelson and a book by Becca Brunstetter. Uh, based on the Nicholas Sparks book, and it's supposed to be a real tearjerker. So check out that that profile, and if you're in Chicago, go see it. Yeah, I've been hearing about that a lot. Uh, uh, that production, I know, because partly because a friend of mine is uh, writing another musical with Becca Brunstetter, AD sixteen, about the teen years of Jesus. That was a, sort of a hit at Olney Theater Center. And he's been trying to get Becca's attention because she's this big Broadway bound musical <laughs> is also uh, on her docket. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. That's exciting. I don't know when that's going to be Broadway bound, but it's it, it does have all the pedigree. Um, I think that uh, speaking of DC production, we've mentioned a few, also Chicago Shakes, but we've mentioned a few DC productions. I think it's a good time as any to invite Molly Smith into the Zoom room and uh, and talk to her about her her 25 years. She started as a, as artist director of Arena Stage in 1998. She's directed 30 productions there and really made it a center for new American playwriting. Um, she helped build a new a new giant center there, Mead Center for uh, American Plays. Um, Molly, it's great to have you with us virtually. Um, 25 years. <laughs> Uh, congratulations. Uh, 
And you're going to stay through this coming season and then leave next summer. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Great to see yeah. you, Rob. Great to see you, Alexandra. Great. Um, I, I know this is where a lot of a lot of these kind of start, but I wanted to go back, roll back the clock to 1998. What was the sort of state of the arena when you got there? And what was the sort of mandate or charge that, that the, the board gave you and then maybe you that you responded with to them? Well, the state of arena is it's one of those rare theaters that have had uh, long term artistic directors. Zelda Fitchhandler, who started the theater with her husband, Tom, and Edward Mong, was here for 40 years. Mm. Amazing, right? Yeah. And then her associate, Doug Wager, was here as the artistic director for seven years. And when I came in, it was a theater that was both in search of an audience and in search of a place to be because uh, the theater spaces were, how shall I put it, uh, neglected. They weren't in good shape. The spaces weren't in good shape um, because of what happened many, many years ago with the NEA and Maplethorpe Arena, uh -huh. along with a lot of other theaters in the country, took uh, the money that they would uh, normally have received from something like the uh, NEA and instead put it into their productions as opposed to into their their um the vehicles the theaters mm -hmm. the spaces and so um the board had been talking for a number of years about what they were going to do you know building a new space and uh when i came in that was very much in their thinking and the second thing was a feeling that because arena was really the first in washington dc it was one of the first of the not-for-profit uh, resident theaters uh it's 72 years old this year and it had been all things to all people for many many years and suddenly washington dc had 70 or 80 theaters and they asked me the really profound question of how would you focus the theater if you were here and I said, uh, one of two ways. One would be to really focus on international work because this is an international city and this is where people go uh, to uh, examine uh, who we are as Americans. And the other one would be all American work uh, because at that time there was really no other theater in the country that was doing that. Most of my cohorts were looking over their shoulders to see what was happening in London. Uh, they weren't really focused on American work, and there weren't a ton of theaters that were doing a huge number of new plays. And so um, with the board's support, we really focused the theater in that way. So it became a theater focused on American work, American writers, American artists, because Washington, D.C. is a crossroads for American thinking, right? So it, it, it has a certain synergy about it. And mm -hmm. the second thing I had said uh, to the board is whoever comes in, whether it's me or somebody else, uh, they're gonna need to drive uh, really uh, the finances, the uh, design, everything uh, for um, an, a, new, a new theater, you know, whether it's rebuilding this one or whether it's making a new theater. And so that ended up being my 
two mandates uh, when I came in. So it was a pretty thrilling time uh, to be here and super excited to be building on the great uh, legacies of Zelda and Doug. Hmm. And now it's 25 years later. So now it's time for somebody else to come in and uh, build on all of those uh, legacies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was just thinking today about, you know, Arena has been such a marvelous playground for successful Broadway transfers, you know, going back all the way to Great White Hope as the first regional transfer. And then with, you know, shows like Next to Normal and Dear Evan Hansen. And I'm curious from your perspective, what made Arena the right home for these stories? And then maybe when did you know that they were going to be really big? Sure, great question. Well, first of all, I just wanna go back on Great White Hope. It was the first play to be ripped away from a theater and taken to New York without the express permission of the artistic director of the or the executive director. Zelda thought of that as a really awful moment in the life of Arena Stage. There were 63 actors on it, producers swept in and basically took it off to New York. And because it was the first, uh, there was no remuneration that went back to Arena at all, uh, regardless of the fact that Zelda had worked for a number of years taking a script that was about this big and bringing it down to a size that could be produced on uh, on, on the stages. But after that time, uh, Tom Fitchhandler, who was uh, the executive director, made sure that it was written into contracts that theaters in the not-for-profit resident theater movement who had productions that went to New York would receive something afterwards or as the, as the play was going on. So, Kudos to him for that. Um, you know, shame on the producers uh, for what they chose to do. You know, it was a pretty bloody story because then Zelda had to uh, recreate, remake a whole other company. Um, for us on something like uh, Next to Normal, that was a project that I went in and saw at uh, second stage because some people had said to me, you need to go in to see this. This is this is your taste. There are a lot of things that they probably need to fix about it, but I, I bet you'd love it. And I watched the production and the hair on the back of my neck went up. Uh, my dad was a clinical psychologist. My mom was a social worker. And I absolutely uh, loved the music and the story. And Michael Greif is somebody that I knew. And we talked afterwards about some of the changes he wanted to make, some of my thoughts. And then uh, David Stone, who's a brilliant producer, uh, reached out to him and they came and uh, we had a conversation and then decided to bring it for a second production. Because I always believe uh, new musicals and plays usually aren't made in the first uh, production. It's usually the second and third production. Because the first production, you barely know what you have, and uh, you know you need that audience to tell you. And that, uh, you know, I just had huge hopes for it, and I and I love the project. And David Stone essentially then carried it in on his back, back into New York. So it was a rarity going from New York back to the Resident Theater, and then going back to New York where it uh, won a ton of awards, including the Pulitzer Prize, uh, which is very rare, as you know, for musicals. 
And then on something like uh, Dear Evan Hansen, Edgar Doby, who's our executive producer, and myself uh, received a couple of the songs from uh, Wendy Orshon and uh, Stacy Mindich. And I was sitting here at my computer and heard the first two songs and I just said, okay, Edgar, we've got to do this. This is fantastic. And again, Michael Greif was a director and mm. um, went in and uh, spoke to Stacy and uh, decided that it would come to Arena and would premiere here. And then it did the exact opposite, which is it started here, it went to second stage, and then mm. it went to Broadway. And again, you know, won a ton of awards and went on to London. And as you know, is just going to be closing the middle of September after a pretty glorious uh, run. So we've been fortunate with really, really uh, great projects since I've been here, probably eight or nine projects have gone on to New York. These are the two that you mentioned, Alexandra, that have had the, the most, um, what you would call financial uh, success, but a lot of them have been fantastic and, and we're, we're proud of that. I have to say I am as proud of the projects that have gone all across America, uh, because I think we've had in my tenure here, 150 different productions that have gone around the country of um, uh, Destiny of Desire by Karen Zacharias. I mean, there's, it's been, to me, it's really exciting to be a Johnny Appleseed <laughs> and to start something at Arena and just have it go. I like that. It was Molly Appleseed, he's called it. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you were on our cover 12 years ago, almost exactly 12 years ago in September. I think we have the slide of that. Oscar, you have the slide? If he doesn't, it's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll put it up in a second. Um, and one of the themes looking back at that story was that uh, among, the, among the things you talked about 12 years ago were that when you came to Arena, you were very much thinking about plays. Oh, there, there's the cover. <laughs> Standing in your new center there. I love um, it. Yeah. Um, I don't look so different, really. No, I? I know. You have an age today. Um, uh, um, that that, that among, among the things you sort of discovered or learned, maybe you learned it from the space, but also just from, from digging into was musicals, right? That yeah. you were a play, a play person, you, you know, uh, only serious. And especially, I think, with your mandate focused on, on American work. But you discovered that, I mean, as many folks have re keep rediscovering that musical theater to, to a large extent is sort of the great American. There's a lot of great American plays that aren't musicals, but it is one of the great American traditions and one of the great American literature. Uh, what if you could talk a little bit about, about that conversion? And I, I didn't escape my notice that the last two musicals that are the projects that Ali mentioned were musicals, Dear Next to Normal, Dear Evan Hansen. You had a, not only developed a, a love for that, but it's sort of an ear for what might be new musicals as well. Great. Yeah. Well, when I was uh, directing South Pacific, because before South Pacific, I had rejected the American musical. I didn't think it was serious work. I did not. I didn't buy it. I wasn't interested in it. Um, and my friends kept telling me, hey, you kind of have a, a style that's right for the American musical. And I was just, uh. <laughs> and I would produce American musicals and I couldn't deny what was happening in the audience. I couldn't deny 
what was happening as far as people tapping their feet, having the ideas cross into their brains. And so I thought, okay, fine, I'm going to do this. So the morning after my first rehearsal with the American musical, my head popped up and I turned to my partner, Suzanne, and I said, I was born to direct musicals. And from then on, I, I find it the most subversive art form because we can say things in a musical that you would never say in a straight play. You'd have people running to the aisles. <laughs> it is our great American art form. We created it. Everybody else has copied us, but it's our art form. Mm -hmm. So it's a seminal art form in that way. Uh, and, you know, you kind of trace its trajectory into the American musical and you can see where it came out of everything from uh, vaudeville to, you know, operettas and things like that in, in the United States and why it came in and the way it came in. I have a particular love for the golden age of American musicals. So Rodgers and Hammerstein, I've directed many of them from uh, Oklahoma on. And uh, I, I love them. I love to do them in the space that you're in, Rob, because it is, uh, well, it's not actually in that space. You're in the Kogod Cradle. But oh, okay. if, you were, if you were in the Fitch Handler, it's a theater <laughs> in the round. And uh, there's something about the dynamism of that kind of space that begs you to reinvent whatever that particular project is in terms of the American musical. So I really uh, adored that. And of course, uh, Arena Stage is a type of theater that is also a feeder theater, which means that we create new audiences and the American musical does that because parents yeah. and grandparents bring their kids in, their grandkids. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I love it when I see little girls with their twirly skirts uh, come in and little boys dressed with their bow ties. And they're, they're here to see a musical because I think if you're a cultured person, you actually have to understand the American musical because of the language that gets filtered through our culture because of the American musical. Definitely. Speaking of your wonderful space, I believe the last time that we, you know, did a big feature, you were right in the trenches of, of building and designing the, the Mead Center, and you were about to do Oklahoma, and it was all of this big, wonderful conversation. And I'm curious how maybe your style influenced the space, what you wanted from the space, and then maybe how, you know, working in the space has influenced your work as well. Right. Well, that was an unusual production because it was probably the first time that it was done in a cross-cultural way. At least that's what the estate has told me. And I really wanted it to be a microcosm of America. And so it was African-American artists. It was Latino artists. It was Asian-American artists because I dug into the history of Oklahoma and found that in the great land rush, which is when this was, it's when a territory becomes a state, that uh, there were so many uh, different groups there who were running for land. You had one day that started at noon where everybody's on their horses and they're running to grab 160 acres. So you had Asian American communities, you had African American communities, 
of course, Native American communities. And what I did with the project is make it modern by putting all of that together. And I wanted that spirit of a territory becoming a state to be infused in this production. Um, because I'm a very Western person, even though I'm living in the East. Um, and it's the idea that it has that kind of kick-ass energy. And I wanted Arena to be able to have that big launch of, okay, everybody, we did it. And here we are. And Oh, What a Beautiful Morning, which is the first song, is the song that happens as people are coming into Arena Stage at the Mead Center for American Theater. So it was a very, very exciting time. And that project then uh, was done. I think we had two or three different runs of it here at Arena, and it influenced productions of Oklahoma all over the country. Uh, so I guess that would be my stamp on the American theater is an ability to be able to uh, reimagine what's there. And probably the other thing coming from uh, my background, play background, is I dig into the material language-wise as if it's Shakespeare. I work with a literary person the whole time. I work with somebody who parsing is parsing every bit of the language as opposed to we get up and we uh, learn the music, we get up and, and uh, dance. I do table work for three or four days. That's kind of unheard of in musicals. And yet I think what it does is it digs into story. So that becomes as important as the dance and the music. Fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask uh, about the DC theater scene. You mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Arena was sort of the first, and then it grew up uh, over the years since then, a lot of uh, theaters, the Shakespeare Theater and Studio and, and many others. Um, about the scene and the audiences, um, I know those are two sort of separate, but they're related questions. Uh, who, who this scene is for and who comes to the theater. I wondered who, who, who is your audience and how has that shaped your program as well? Well, the audience here is pretty fantastic. I'd say it's the smartest audience in the country. Uh, not, not a surprise in some ways. Um, it's an audience that understands nuance and actors love to perform here because we'll bring in productions from other cities and they'll be, oh my God, your audience listens in a whole different way than I've ever heard an audience listen. Um, and that's probably because Washington DC has always um, garnered the, the best and the brightest from around the country. And they're people who love language and they're people who uh, love theater. I really wanted to reflect the city. So when I came in 25 years ago, I moved the programming into at least a third of the programming is around artists of color. And that also changed uh, the dynamic. Uh, Zelda said many years ago that your repertory is history and that whatever you're doing in the theater within five years, that's the audience that you'll have. And so about a third of our audiences are, are people of color. And that has made it one of the most dynamic audiences, I think, in the country. And that's been going on for about 25 years. Um, so to me, that's really exciting because it means that, that we're speaking to the city. Because when you're a resident theater company, you're resident in a community. And it needs to be first 
what that community is because otherwise nobody comes to see it, right? <laughs> um, and also for me, it has to be reflective of what the interests are, what the drives are of a community. And for me, this is a very political city. It may seem counterintuitive, but uh, probably about 15 years ago, I started saying, we really need to be doing more political work. And uh, some people were arguing with me. They said, oh, people are bored with that. We read about it in the newspaper. We live it. You know, we work in the White House. We work here. And I said, yeah, but people are addicted to it here. <laughs> so then we created something uh, called the power play cycle, where mm -hmm. there are um, 25 different plays that are being written for every decade of American life. And that kind of spurred us on, whether it was the originalist about Justice Scalia or whether it was Camp David that was about Jimmy Carter and Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat about uh, the Middle East Peace Accord. And it was all of these combinations of uh, history and present day that also catapulted us uh, once more into the heart of the city. And then we found that other theaters started doing that as well. In the, in the area where people had uh, shied away from it. And now it became more, well, this is interesting and people are going to it. Um, because I think theater cities, great theater cities like DC is growing bunches. Somebody said that at one point in Seattle, oh. like grapes. Huh. And it's always been in my head that because you grow in bunches, you react with each other in terms of the making of work and responding to each other's work. Uh, and this is a city that is super collaborative with each other. Uh, we meet with each other over coffee. We have conversations about problems that we're having. And this has been going on the whole time I've been here. I know other cities have been doing it since the pandemic, but this has been very natural to this city. You know, you have the, there's always, uh, competition in terms of audience and donors. And there's also always collaboration in terms of help us out with uh, finding an actor that's a very specific actor or somebody else calling in. Uh, we really need this set piece. Do you have anything like that? We really need these costumes. So that kind of collaboration, which got even deeper with the pandemic, where it was really discussing problems that were common to all of us, has been a strong lift for the whole city. And along with that, I'd say, although Arena doesn't have a company anymore, there is a company of actors that I'd say is a Washington DC company that work everywhere. They'll work at Arena, they'll work at Shakespeare, they'll work at Woolly, they'll work at Signature, they'll work at Studio, they'll work at Fords, so that they create a whole life uh, through the theaters here in Washington, which is really exciting. So you've spent, you know, the last 25 years refocusing theater on wonderful new plays and re-envisioning some classics. And I'm curious if you think that you've built or shaped an American canon. Well, for sure an American canon, not the American canon. <laughs> yeah, just because we've, we've, we've done a lot of premieres and uh, a pretty broad range of work. Um, 
at some point, you know, when the when the power play cycle is done, it would be really exciting to put all of those plays into a book so that hmm. people could have them and could look at them because it gives you a particular and peculiar roadmap through American thinking. Yeah, interesting. Um, you, you've mentioned Zelda a bunch of times, and I know she was a formative influence for the not just the arena, but the entire American theater. She's one of the pioneers of the theater we take for granted, even just the nonprofit system we take for granted now. I wonder if you could just tell me a little more about what you took from her. I know she might've been intimidating at times to meet and to talk to, but uh, I've taken a lot from her writings over the years. Uh, I never had a chance to meet her. She's a little before my time, but I would just love to know what you what you took from her and, and where you think her spirit still lives. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love Zelda, respected her, admired her. You know, when I was uh, going to school at uh, Catholic U and American U in my 20s, I had a mini subscription here to Arena. So I used to read everything that Zelda wrote, come and see the productions here. Right, uh, the uh, Death of a Salesman with Bob Prosky was a particular favorite when she talked about the life of of an actor and uh i've i think she's the architect of the not-for-profit movement you know they did things that were first consistently you know this this theater started out as a for-profit theater you know mm -hmm. she along with others were able to successfully argue at the level of congress that theater needs to be looked at in the same way as uh, museums and libraries as a not-for-profit entity there wasn't any thought of that before so she was constantly forging forward this was the first theater to have an endowment it was the first theater to travel behind the iron curtain it was the first uh theater to have monday night readings now we make curse them for that <laughs> or we may thank them for that um but it was just first 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 and that's also because they were one of the first theaters this was the first theater in washington dc to integrate so there is a, a deep through line of thought around diversity here at, at arena and inclusion um one of the things she said to me when we first met is we're both pioneers. She said, you in Alaska with what you did with Perseverance Theater and starting a theater and myself here at, at Arena, which I always, um, I thought that was something beautiful that she said to me. Uh, she was a steely presence. She was a type of person who could look into your soul. <laughs> and um, I'll never forget when I first met her, she said, all right, are you uh, open and willing to work 24 seven? She said, if you're not, you can't do this. Hmm. And I thought that doesn't scare me, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I loved her as a director. I loved her as a scholar. I loved her as a thinker. And I loved the way that she treated people. Uh, she was always interested in people's family. That was her first way in. Hmm. She was interested in the names of people's dogs. She was interested in 
she was just, she was curious and uh i know todd has todd london has his uh book coming out that will be uh her speeches and i mm -hmm. think that that's going to be an exciting moment for people to re-examine the influence she's had on all of us in the not-for-profit theater yeah i'm looking forward to that book yeah uh to piggyback some to piggyback off of something you just mentioned uh your work at perseverance in alaska I'm curious, uh, you know, how did, you know, having your boots on, on the ground in Alaska and building this theater, how did that inform your work in DC later? Like, did, did Alaska give you anything to feed off of? Oh, absolutely. You know, my family moved to Alaska when I was a kid, when I was 16. And it was when I was 19 that I decided I wasn't gonna be a lawyer anymore. I was gonna start a theater in Alaska. And so when my former husband and I came out of Washington, D.C., we drugged 50 used theater seats across the country to start Perseverance Theater. And at one point he looked out the window as these movers were moving these theater seats into the basement of our triplex we just bought. And he said, you're kind of serious about this theater thing, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. So we started the theater pretty quickly with a group of cohorts that just joined together who continue to be some of my best friends 40 years later uh, to create this theater of by and about Alaskans in Alaska. And in some ways, Alexandra, I think of what we did have done here at Arena as coming out of Alaska, because you could also say what I've built here is of by and about Americans. And that was of buying about Alaska. And so it was a specific narrow pathway there and it got writ large here. And I think the boots on the ground is apt because I, my, uh, my partner Suzanne and I have a cabin in Alaska that's next to a very big salmon river. And we have about 18 grizzlies in the area and uh, we fish, we, hang out with friends we're in the woods picking mushrooms i mean we're doing everything up there because i i love alaska and those mountains the fjords the waterways the whales that's inside of me all the time <laughs> so as things happen as things always happen in the uh in the theater and uh, problems come up I always know that the problems can be solved because uh, if you can solve them in the wilderness, you can solve them in a city. That's great. I, I not to change gears too too jarringly, but I wanted to know this is your this is going to be your final season. Can you tell us what you have in store for the coming season, Molly? Give us a little plugs. Well, one of the biggest things we just announced yesterday is called My Body, No Choice. Wow. And uh, what had happened to me when I uh, read the decision uh, about uh, getting rid of Roe v. Wade is I was completely devastated and frustrated and uh, pissed off. And I just thought, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And I woke up uh, one morning about a week later and I just thought, I'll make a theater piece out of it. Hmm because I've always been an activist. My partner and I did the March on Washington uh, for gun control uh, 12 years ago after Sandy Hook, uh, where we 
brought about 6,000 uh, people here to uh, march in Washington. And then uh, the Mueller report is something that we read uh, part two of here. And my life, I mean, if you look at it, it's been a combination of theater and it also has often had social programming somewhere kind of driving it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or political somehow driving it. And so uh, we went out and commissioned eight different uh, women writers uh, to write about choice and lack of choice. And of mm -hmm. course, as you can imagine, a number of these 10 minute monologues are about abortion, but yeah. they're not all about abortion. One is about a woman who chooses to be a particular size, which is not the size that, that uh, society says that she should be. Mm -hmm. Another one is about a woman's uh, right to choose. And it's people like Sarah Rule and uh, V. Eve Ensler and Dale Orlando Smith and Mary Hall Surface. And one is being written by someone who's anonymous because she mm -hmm. thinks uh, there is uh, pain and privacy in this mm -hmm. moment as well. But I think what's happened is if women can tell their stories, I think society changes. If women don't tell their stories and keep it inside because they're afraid or feel ashamed or feel uncomfortable, society won't change. It'll just be, it's just, it's just a, it's just a blur. And I remember with uh, gay rights before Obergefell, people just moved into, I'm going to tell my uncle, I'm going to tell my neighbor, I'm going to say, you know what? I'm gay. I'm this, I'm that. And people suddenly went, well, Bob's not such a bad guy. I guess he's fine. So it, basically, what's my issue? And something like abortion is a health issue. And so we're also doing as an important part of the project asking all women trans non-binary individuals from around uh, the united states to uh, send in two-minute stories about choices that they've made around their bodies or have not been allowed to make so that we're going to extend this uh, production so that it um so that it reaches people in a different way through social media as well. Mm -hmm. And I've just been uh, with uh, the writers and with the artistic team reaching out to theaters around the country because the writers have generously offered for theaters to have readings of this in the run-up to midterms from October 21st through November 6th where they can do readings of these free at their theaters. So I'm very excited about that. Um, it's exciting to me that this is the last uh, production that I'll be doing here as artistic director. And it's like, okay, let's go, let's go. Um, so Rob, to answer your question, we're, we also just closed American Profit and uh, that was by uh, about Frederick uh, Douglass. It was very much in his own words. So a majority of the lyrics came directly from his writings. Uh, real power punch of a, of a story. Uh, wonderful music by Marcus Humann. Charles Randolph Wright directed it. Uh, it was truly a barn burner. 
And we just went into rehearsal for Holiday, which is a Philip Berry story oh, yeah. about a young man who decides to live his life backwards. <laughs> so he actually travels, wants to travel and enjoy his life uh, before um, before uh, he goes before he goes to work. He's got a right. pack of money, and and he decides to do that. And I think it's the kind of question that people are going through right now after COVID. You know, what do I want to do with this one glorious life that I have? Um, and then uh, we have Sanctuary City uh, that's coming in with a co-pro uh, with uh, Berkeley Rep. Janos Saz, who's a brilliant uh, director, uh, film and stage director, who uh, recently has come here to the United States, hopefully as an immigre, um, is going to be um, directing Angels in America. And I love that because I love to take an international voice who looks at our American work and uh, re-examines it. Uh, Nathan Allen Davis is directing his new power play called The High Ground uh, that is about Black Wall Street and the massacre that happened uh, in Oklahoma in the 1920s. And then uh, we have Ken Lin is uh, has written a new piece, also a power play, about the Chinese Exclusion Act. That's hmm. called Exclusion, but really it is about right now, Hollywood, a scholar who's writing about the Chinese Exclusion Act, who has her story taken away from her and made into like a Kung Fu movie. And it's about <laughs> what happens, who gets to tell the story. Right. So those are those are some of the projects, and we're um, working with a group called Step Africa, uh, and they are this um, brilliant group of uh, performers who are. It's it's a dance company, one of the best African American dances uh, dance companies in the in the country, and we have a five year relationship with them. Last year we did Drum Folk, and uh, this this. Uh, this this season we're we're bringing in a, a Christmas show from them, uh, so a uh, lot to chew on in the season. Yeah, definitely. I was just looking online. I, I guess Ride the Cyclone is also coming. That's the one title you didn't mention, but the, yep, it's and, made the made the rounds of a few theaters and played here as well. Yep, from New York. Yep, um, it's a fun show. Um, and Ride the Cyclone is also coming out of the McCarter Theater. Okay, right. Yeah, so with Sarah, and it's directing it. Yeah. It's it's fantastic. I saw it probably I don't know maybe two months ago when it was running there. Just uh, terrific work, and I think it's one that a lot of young audiences are going to fall in love with because it's quirky and odd. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a musical too. So plus. it's a musical. That's right. <laughs> um, I uh, I want to just yeah ask you sort of a big question. Uh, by definition, you've, you've been in the business for a long time. You're at that theater for for a quarter century, and what's the, you've you've alluded to some of these uh, and talked about them, but I want to ask you directly: what did, what are the biggest changes you've seen in that time, for better or worse, in, in the American theater, maybe in the culture generally? Because you've been in Washington for some interesting through a number of administrations, but also uh, through the theater through a number of periods. Um, yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a great question. Well, you know, I was always asking myself, because of the work that Zelda and others did with 
the not-for-profit resident theater, that that was a revolution that was won, right? And now what's the next revolution? And I think we're in the, we are in the middle of the next revolution. Um, and so I think it's going to be fascinating to see how all the theaters come out of COVID. Um, we can see some theaters stumbling. We can see some theaters soaring. We can see some theaters that you think, are, will they survive um, because of what's happening with audiences? You know, you got 50% of your audiences that are saying they're nervous about coming back because of COVID, right? That's, that's a... That's huge because the majority of us have a lot of adherence uh, to earned income. And if audiences are not coming back, then where do, where do we move? And audiences in, in uh, lesser numbers. Uh, so I've seen a change as far as that. Certainly all of the changes around uh, changing kind of the internal structures of theaters, whether it has to do with technical theater, whether it's having intimacy consultants, whether it is um, having to have uh, and needing to have and wanting to have a culturally uh, specific consultants on, on uh, productions, the need to have diversity throughout our organizations, not just on stage and uh, backstage, mm. but in the boardroom and uh on staffs i mean that's a that's a revolution and i i just feel like we're in the beginning of that next revolution you know i think it happened a lot on uh broadway for a lot of people this year because there were so many uh plays written by uh black playwrights and uh you see it across the country suddenly people are doing uh plays uh written by artists of color I think that's exciting for the whole field. I think there's a dynamism that's uh, happening now. What I would hope is that is that it's really all about the work and the story and the content. Because one of the things that I'm starting to see is that some of the work is really more about something else. It's it's more about um, how can I do the coolest thing on stage or how can I do the most peculiar thing on stage as opposed to what's the meat of the story. And I'm totally old fashioned in that version. I think that that's why audiences come. They come because they want to hear a great story. They come because either they want to learn in terms of the theater, like, We've, we've just done a whole thing with our audiences to find out what kind of theater they're interested in. A lot of them are interested in theater with meaty topics. Some of them are more interested in light and lively. Although I told a funny story uh, when we were at Perseverance Theater, we did that with our audience as well. And uh, audiences came back and one of them said, I really like all of the funny plays. And we had the next line was, and um, can you describe the best play you've seen at Perseverance Theater? And, and they said, Macbeth. And I thought, <laughs> you just, you never know with audiences, right? Yeah, yeah. 
I, I do think that was that the theme of the column I just wrote was do we want theater that challenges us or that 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 uh, is especially escapism? I think the answer is yes. We want both of those things, right? I, Ideally, I, some yeah. Yep. No. No. I I agree. I was I was doing the same thing with some audience members who were talking about wanting to see lighter things. And I said, how'd you feel about American Prophet? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I said, well, it's a pretty difficult story. I know, but I felt so good after it. I said, <laughs> that's the power of yeah. when theater actually cleanses you. Sure, sure. But you know that, and I haven't read your article, so I can't wait. Oh, no, yeah. I mean, that was, that's the one I just mashed together the yes the, the david strathairn piece about the holocaust with oh, cool. uh, you know with the grizzles broader vacation so it was a little bit of a <laughs> yep. mishmash yeah yeah this might be a cockeyed optimist question but are you hopeful about where american theater is going uh, is there something that gives you hope about it absolutely i'm totally hopeful about it hopeful and absolutely energized by it I'm energized by uh, the ideas. I'm energized by how many smart people continue to be drawn to the theater. I'm uh, energized by all of the new leadership throughout the entire country. Um, I'm energized by a kind of uh, fearlessness and need I say pioneering experience that people are having in the American theater. Um, and I'm also energized by the kind of collaborations that I'm seeing, right? I love yeah. those collaborations. I think you've earned earned the right to do to do a lot of fishing now, but I wanted to ask about what your what's your what 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 are your plans are next after next summer? Are you gonna direct a bit or are you gonna just go to Alaska and and uh get in your boots? <laughs> <laughs> also, I also do you do you have pets and what are their names? I guess I should ask you that, right? <laughs> we don't have pets, so there are no their names. Okay, good. You know, uh, it's interesting. I've, I've been asked to go out and direct or also to do a movie and um, all of those things I've kind of uh, considered. And then uh, people immediately moved into, and your due date for this is blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna leave Arena after encapsulating this great 25 year period of time and do a bunch of word, world traveling. Because uh, before I came to Arena, I went around the world twice. Um, since I've been at Arena, I mean, I've gone to Egypt, I've gone to Russia, I've gone to Eastern Europe, I've gone to a lot of places, but not the kind of really, really deep traveling that I used mm -hmm. to do all the time coming from Alaska. And so I need to do that for a while. Um, and uh, then I'm sure there will be other projects. There could be films, there could be, you know, what I feel like is I'm finishing off this major chapter of my life and I'm 70. I'm still totally vital. I've uh, energetic, uh, full of ideas. And now it's okay. What's next? What do I, what do I, what do I move into? I've started potting too, Rob. I throw mm -hmm. pots nice. and I just started about a year ago. And so there's something about that. That's, beautiful that that craft of getting my hands into clay because normally I work with groups of people and to have something that is just a craft for myself I think is is uh, is important so I, I think to answer your question uh, more I'm not sure what it is 
<laughs> but I will find out uh, because I've always followed my passions. Well, you follow your passions and we followed, we came along with you. Molly, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I hope we get to talk again soon. And yeah. I wish you the best for the final, your final season at Arena. I'm so beyond. excited to see all of these shows and all the wonderful places you travel. I'll be waiting for my postcard. <laughs> <laughs> we did get one Facebook comment of someone, someone thanking you for the My Body No Choice series, saying it was a, a brilliant and incredible opportunity to share our experiences before, during, and after Roe v. Wade. So, and that's going to be the end of the season. It's going to, it's going to no, go up now. Oh, it's now. Sorry, it's now. now. I wanted yeah, to do yeah. it fast. You want to do it fast? That's right. Okay. So it so it opens October twentieth, and it runs. That's right. You said November sixth, right before the midterms, because I feel like people there are primed. Go. They're like primed. This and is the time. Let's get this some is... juice out in the system, which is this what is I think we need to do as theater makers. <laughs> well, thank from, you from your for, lips for to... making that space. Yeah. Oh, theater's ears. Okay, and All you right, know, Molly. great interview. Great interview, great questions, really made me think and made me think in the right way. So thank you. And thank you to American Theater from a kid working in Alaska when I was 26, when I started the theater, reading everything coming out of American Theater, which at that point was just a pamphlet. Yeah. Right? yeah. Mm -hmm. To now, I've uh, so appreciated all of you and the work you do. Oh, thank you for that, thank Molly. You. I really appreciate it. Means a lot to us as well. Thanks again for your time, and have a great have a great season. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. bye. bye.